Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. I want to ask you this morning, if you would take God's word and open it with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for this morning's message and for our time together here today, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In the midst of all the hustle and bustle of life and things that are going on, it might have been hard for us to realize this morning that today is indeed September the 11th, 2022. Today marks the 21st anniversary of a very sad day in American history. On that day, there were thousands of people who were killed, and frankly, our entire nation began to mourn. There are many of us here today who are so young that we were not yet alive when that took place. There are many of us who are here today that, frankly, we were just too young to really understand all that was going on on that day. But there are also many of us here today that remember every aspect of the day. We remember where we were when we heard the news We remember how we responded when we saw the images. We remember the feeling of grief and the feeling of anxiety or the feeling of just frankly not knowing what to do. All we could do was sit and grieve and mourn. Many sat numb, uncertain by all that was going on, paralyzed by fear and anxiety. The slogan of the day became two simple words. They were the words, never forget. We as a nation were called to never forget, never forget the lives that were lost, never forget the reality of evil, never forget what courage looks like as so many of our first responders were running right into the face of danger. Never forget the sacrifice of so many for the well-being of others. Never forget even the fragility of our own life. We, in the course of those days, were literally seeing it on bumper stickers and on news stations and on headlines. The message of the day, it became a rallying cry for our nation, never forget. And truthfully, at the time, I wondered, how could we ever forget? Frankly, when I think back to those days on September the 11th and the days that followed, I remember the way that communities came together. I remember the way that people came together in churches, In fact, very specifically, I remember the day of those events leading a worship service on Liberty University's campus. I remember the Sunday after September the 11th, uh, leading in worship with a ministry team in Pennsylvania less than 10 miles from where one of the planes had gone down. I remember how full the churches were. I remember how people came to the altar and they were begging God for mercy and they were begging God for comfort and they were begging God to do something amazing. It seemed at the moment that we would never forget. But you know, somewhere along the way, in the midst of life, with all the divisions and all the political chaos and all the challenges and all the distractions, while many of us remember the fact of what occurred, we've lost sight of what really happened. Somewhere along the way, with everything else going on in life, we tend to lose sight of what took place on 9-11. And yet God has something, I think, in that reality that he wants us to see. September the 11th will always be remembered as a day of great sorrow, a great grief, and a great mourning for us as a nation. But the reality is, even in the midst of death and destruction, God gave a sign and a symbol of hope. On September the 13th, two days after what took place with the trade centers, 
As the crews began to search through the debris, looking for any survivors, carefully removing pieces to make sure that they didn't cause further harm, a worker by the name of Frank Silesia discovered something amazing. As they tore down what little remained of one wall, he suddenly came to a place of rubble in the ground. And as he came to that place of rubble, he looked ahead of him and he saw two large steel beams that were welded together in the shape of a cross. With everything shattered all around it, destruction everywhere, literally rocks and walls and rebar and steel everywhere he could see. In the midst of it all stood a cross. Frank Silesia literally described it as a sign from God in the midst of utter devastation. Over the coming weeks, as searchers would go in there to look for people trying to recover remains. Many would often stop by that cross to say a prayer. People would take notes of messages, prayer requests, and they would stop and they would place it there on the cross. Others would just go in a moment of silence and they would touch the cross as if it was a means of receiving God's blessing. In the midst of such death and destruction, right there in the midst of it all, God gave a symbol of hope. But you know, the truth is, there wasn't a lot of value in that cross. It was just two steel beams welded together. The value came not in the object itself, but in what it represented. Because in those who believed, those who knew the message of the cross, those who received it by faith, they understood it was a symbol of the fact that God loved them, that God cared for them, that even in the midst of their sorrow, there was peace and there was hope and there was deliverance, there was life, even in the midst of such great death. That value came because of what Jesus did on the cross. The Bible says in John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. In other words, there in the midst of that sorrowful place, God gave a message of hope because of the cross that was there. The truth is, is that even in that day, as Frank Silesia founded, there were many who saw it as a means of hope, but there were many who mocked it. Even as they established it at the 9-11 memorial, there were many who attacked it, who said, hey, that offends me. I don't want to see anything about that cross. And such is the case still today. Those who know the power of the cross and receive and believe in the message of the cross by faith understand the great hope and peace and joy and victory that it brings. But others will mock it and attack it even as we see in our text today. I want you to look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter one, and I wanna ask you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word today. Somebody said, Pastor, are we here today to remember 9-11? No, we're not. As Christians, we have a much higher calling. I wanna call us today, challenge us today to never forget the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen to what the Bible says about the cross in 1 Corinthians one, verses 18 and following. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. So where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world, the despised things God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time together. Would you speak to our hearts and minds, draw us to yourself, and may today we be reminded of the message of the cross, and may we never forget it, but cling to it all the days of our life. I pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. Never forget the cross. The truth is, we all know today what a cross is. We know what it looks like. We can envision it in our mind. Even those of us who are not artists, thank you very much, we can draw a simple cross. But the reality is, is that in our day today, while we might look at it in in nice terms, the fact is, in that culture, the cross was no such thing. In that day, as Paul is writing these words, the cross was an object of, frankly, much disgust. And the reason why is because the cross was meant for the worst of the worst, those who were criminals, those who were rebels, those who resisted the edicts of the king, those who went their own direction away from the governing authorities, they would often be sentenced to death on a cross. Cross was the main way that they would mean to torture and to persecute, to humiliate and to crucify those who frankly in their mind were considered to be the lowest of society. And yet today we recognize that the cross is no longer merely a symbol of shame, but it's a symbol of victory and it's a symbol of life and it's a symbol of hope for all who understand and receive the message of what Jesus did for us on the cross. As we look to 1 Corinthians chapter one, I believe God is showing us loud and clear there's three things about the cross that we must never forget. Sadly, just like many of us here in America have kind of lost sight of what really took place at September the 11th, the reality is for many of us, even who follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, it can be very easy for us to get distracted, to lose focus on the Lord, and to, be, uh, uh, to have a cold heart and mind towards what he really did. And I believe God is calling us today to get back to remembering the power of the cross, what he did, and why it matters in our life today. Three things I want you to see this morning about never forgetting the cross. The first is simply that. It is the power of the cross. Paul says in verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, when Paul wrote this letter, he was writing this to the Corinthian church, which was largely made of Greek believers. Uh, People who were Greek in that culture were basically the intellects of the day. The Greek culture were the experts. The people who were Greek were experts in poetry and art, science, uh, philosophy, even religion, just to name a few. When you go back and study the culture that day, some of the names that stand out are Homer and Sophocles and Socrates and Plato and Pericles and Aristotle. These were the intellects of the day. Many of them who claimed to be the wise of the wise, the intellects of the day, they looked at the cross with disgust and they looked at it as if it was simply a foolish message. Why? Because the message of the cross is a great paradox. It's a great paradox. 
A paradox is a seemingly absurd statement, which is actually true. To the Greeks, they didn't understand. How can we have life from that in their culture, which was a symbol for death? How can we have deliverance from something in the midst of that that is often associated with such bondage and such suffering and such shame? But because of Jesus Christ, because he died on the cross for the sins of the world, because that wasn't the end of the story. He was put into a tomb and three days later rose again from the grave because the cross stands empty today. There's hope and there's life and there's salvation. That is the power of the cross. Paul said the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That word for foolishness literally in our culture today would be described as that which is silly or stupid. In our home, we don't allow our children to use the S word, stupid. But the reality is, is that that's how the Greeks would look at it. They simply do not understand. What is the point of the cross? They look at it with disgust and they look at it with confusion. Well, Paul looks at us loud and clear and he says, now listen, I want you to understand something. The power of the cross destroys the wisdom of man. And the power of the cross sets aside the cleverness of the clever. In other words, the wisdom of this world looks at everything logically and naturally. The wisdom of the world today would refer to humanism and saying, man is his own God. Man can do whatever he wants to do. If it feels good, do it and do whatever you want to do to make your life happy, to make your life full. After all, humanism, you deserve it. How often in our culture do we hear what we deserve as in the terms of good things, of all the wonderful things that we apparently deserve in life. As a result of that, we begin to look at ourselves. We look at our pleasure. What do we want to do? How do we want to live? We look to other man's philosophies. We look to science and technology and psychology and philosophy and education and politics. We look even to the government. Hey, someone give us answers. Help us to know how we're to live life and to experience life to the fullest. Paul speaks through the midst of all that, and he says, I want you to tell you something. The wisdom of man will never accomplish the power of God. The cleverness of man will never accomplish the power of God. All the different things, the best that man can offer can never save your soul, can never transform your life, can never set you free from sin and bondage. Only the power of the cross can do that. That's why Paul asked the question, so where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? And where is the debater? What Paul is doing is he's pointing out three specific groups of people who denied the power of the cross. The wise men are the scholars who aim to dismiss the importance of the cross. Well, we've got this new scientific study. We've got this new experience. We've got this new uh, revelation. We've got this new understanding. And as a result of their scholarly intellect, they tried to deny the, the ultimate importance of the cross. And then there are the scribes. The scribes were the religious Jews of the day. They claimed to know the law of God and ultimately as a result of their religion, they tried to debate the validity of the cross. But then he asked, where is the debater? Where are the skeptics who ultimately simply outright deny the cross? They look at the cross and they look at God and they say, I will not believe. Paul said, bring them on. Bring on the skeptic, bring on the scholar, bring on the religious scribe, because I want you to know the power of the cross will destroy all other of man's best arguments that he would bring. And that's why he asked, has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? Think about human wisdom for just a moment. In human wisdom, if there is a holy God who is righteous and true, 
It doesn't take us long to look at our own life and realize that we've all sinned. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It means that God is perfect and he's holy and he's righteous and he's true, but we've all missed the mark. We've all fallen short. It doesn't take a man long to realize that. Because the truth is, we can set our own marks and our own goals. And guess what? We fall short even of them. And yet in our humanistic mindset, it's easy for us to say, you know what? I've sinned. I've done some things that are wrong. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to make it up. I'm going to do good works. And I'm going to be nice to my neighbor. I'm going to help someone in need. And hopefully in the end, my good will outweigh my bad. That's human wisdom. In fact, in that human wisdom, it is frankly the groundwork and the framework for every other false religion and every other cult in the world today. It is working to get to God. It is working to undo what we've done. It is working to bring our best. But I want to remind us, because we have sinned against a holy God, there is nothing good in us apart from him. There's nothing we can do to earn God's grace. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. The only thing we can do is look to God and what he has done so that our sins could be forgiven. The reality is, oftentimes we turn to good works. We turn to religion because it's our human understanding that we've got to logically figure it out and do it our own. John Phillips says it this way. Religion always calls for feasts and fasts, pilgrimages and penances, sacrifices and sufferings, rules and rituals. The whole premise is, is, is works. The reality is God is calling us to recognize the power of the cross brings man's wisdom, our cleverness, all of our good works and efforts trying to do our own, it brings it to naught. That's why Paul makes this statement, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever, I will set aside. When Paul says this, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. Years earlier, there was a time when God's people, the people of Judah, were seeking to honor God, but they had a king, frankly, who thought he knew better. In Isaiah chapter 29, the Bible tells us that an Assyrian army was gathered together and they were getting ready to destroy the people of God. And the king in that moment, instead of looking to God for wisdom, instead of looking to God for direction, he brought all of his scholars and all of the wise men, the best that his kingdom had to offer, and he asked them, what should I do, guys? How can I defeat the enemy? How can I overcome this obstacle? And the Bible says that the wise men said, hey, you need a lot of people. So why don't you make a deal with the Egyptian army and why don't you make a deal with this other army? Get them to fight with us. But he rejected the wisdom of God. In fact, the Bible tells that Isaiah looked at him and he said from the message of God, he said, I want you to know, king, because you have resisted me, you've rejected my wisdom, you've denied my word, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. The king hard-heartedly went ahead and did what he wanted to do listening to the wisdom of the day. And the Bible says he was utterly defeated. And there in that place of defeat, finally the king and the army themselves were brought to a place where the only one they could look to was God, begging God for mercy, begging God to intervene. God, would you please spare us? In other words, it wasn't until they came to an end of themselves that they could truly experience the power of God. Maybe another way to say it is this. It is not until we come to an end of ourselves, the end of our own ideas, our own thoughts, our own cleverness, our own efforts, and our own self-will that we will see that the only way to be saved is by the grace of God. 
Can I tell you as a pastor, I have lived long enough and I have ministered long enough to find that there are many people in many situations who think they can do everything they want to in their own. There are married couples who think they can do whatever they want to. They can do it all on their own. There are people who will come to church and say, well, you know what? I want to pick this verse and I want to pick this verse, but I'm going to leave the rest of it out. I can do it all on my own. But I'm telling you, God's wisdom through the power of the cross destroys the wisdom of the wise and it puts aside the cleverness of the clever. It is not until we realize that God's word is true, that God's message is true, that we can experience the transformation that comes only through the power of the cross. Let me illustrate that. If you're still with me, would you say all right? Just this past weekend, I've had the opportunity to be with a group of people at a wedding. And I was so blessed yesterday to have the opportunity to sit down with a gentleman and have conversation and get to know each other a little bit. And his life and his testimony ministered to me more than I anticipated for certain. We began to talk and we began to have conversation and, and I began to ask him some questions about his life and we were just kind of cutting up and talking along the way. And I asked one specific question and when I asked the question, it was clear that the question struck a nerve. And, and, and he leaned up and we began to talk like face to face in a way that frankly, only close friends might talk. And he began to tell me the story. He said, Pastor, he said, I, I have to be honest with you. He said, uh, I haven't always been where I'm at today. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I spent most of my adult life in and out of jail. I was incarcerated. I said, okay. And he said, but I want you to know something. I said, what's that? He said, I was there because of drugs and I've now been clean for eight years. And I said, really? I said, well, what is it that led to that? What, what was the transformation? How, how did you get to a place where you've now been clean for eight years? And he began to tell me the story about how he had grown up in church as a child and how he had heard different aspects of the gospel and he knew the truth in his heart. But somewhere along the way as a teenager and as a young man, he had various struggles and various challenges that he began to experience and he began to turn to the wrong people and the wrong things along the way. And, and then after that, he became so hooked in that process that even when he tried to do right, he found himself going back to it and going back to it. And so here's what he did. He did what the Jews did. He asked for a sign. In fact, his mother's church, people gathered around him at the altar and they prayed over him. God, would you deliver him? God, would you bring a miracle? God, would you set him free? And he would tell me, literally, he said, listen, I would leave those prayer times and I would be so angry at God because God just wasn't giving me a sign. There was no deliverance. I found myself going right back to it and going right back to it. And then he began to describe. Over the course of the years, I've gone through every program known to man. I've gone through every process, every wisdom of man, every 12-step opportunity, everything that the people have said. I've done it all, and I find myself in the end going back to it and going back to it. He said, but eight years ago, I was in jail, and a chaplain brought me a Bible. And he said, for the first time in years, I had nothing else to do. I started reading the Bible. And he said, I started in Genesis, and I just started reading and he said, after some time, I came to Mark chapter 15. And when I came to Mark chapter 15, I read the story about those, those guards that crucified Jesus, how the Bible says they mocked him and they hit him and they spat on him. And the Bible says in Mark 15, they bowed down and they worshiped him. And he said, all of a sudden in that moment, as I was sitting there in my jail cell, literally high in that moment, I read in that moment about these guys mocking Jesus. And he said, suddenly I realized in that moment that I was the one mocking Jesus. I was the one sinning against Jesus. I was the one who was doing that. And he said, instantly my mind became sober. My eyes became open. And he said, pastor, I wept for days. 
And then he told me, he said, I, I didn't know what to do. And so I just prayed. He said, I've prayed it a million times before. But something was different in that moment. When I prayed and asked God to forgive me, I was looking for a sign over here and I was trying to do everything in man's wisdom with all these programs. I was doing all these things. But suddenly in that moment, I realized I was the one mocking Jesus. I needed him to deliver me. And you know what he found? He found that through the power of the cross, because Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world and through his death, burial, and resurrection, he not only saves, but he sets free. That man was set free. And as I sat there yesterday, I could not help but to, to be amazed as I saw the clarity in his eyes and the clarity of his conscience and the clarity of his life and the promise of his future because he'd been set free by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you this morning, you don't have to live into addictions. You don't have to be overwhelmed by your past. You can walk forward in victory because of the power of the cross. The question is, do you believe it? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Are you clinging to what he did for you? Or are you so busy that you've neglected and forgotten it? The power of the cross. Secondly, the proclamation of the cross. Verses 21 through 25, the power of the cross is evident to bring about salvation. But we must not assume that everyone automatically knows what the cross actually represents. In order for people to know the message of the cross, guess what? We have to tell them. This past summer, my family and I were on vacation the first week of August. And we were, we were at the beach and we went to a restaurant our last night there, right on the boardwalk. And actually I walked up and I immediately noticed that a young lady there was wearing a college t-shirt that represents one of the colleges in our community. And then the next thing I noticed is that she had on a cross necklace. And so I commented, I was like, I love your necklace, that's beautiful. And, and she, she kind of looked down and and then she held it up and she looked at me so strange, like, why would you say that? And then I asked the question, would, would you know what the cross means, right? She said, I know my grandmother just gave this to me. So, well, that cross means that Jesus loves you and died for you and he wants you to know him. Of course, she looked at me like I had three heads. She had no, like, you just made it really awkward, dude, okay? <laughs> but the reality is that young lady has lived in this community for three years. She had a beautiful necklace she was wearing and had no idea what the cross represented. Let that sink in for just a moment. How many of our neighbors, our friends, and our coworkers who have no idea what the message of the cross really is? It's a nice decoration. It's a beautiful piece of jewelry. It's a nice ornament on a wall. It's a symbol on a gravesite. Or it's just a symbol of foolishness. It's just what some people do. It's what the Christians do. But do they really know that the message of the cross is that there is forgiveness of sins, the salvation of their soul, eternal life, home in heaven one day, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ for all of eternity? Do they know the message of the cross? Because the reality is God has a chosen, ordained vehicle by which the message of the cross is to be proclaimed. And that chosen ordained vehicle, Christian, is you and me. It's you and me. It is our calling to proclaim the message of the cross to all so that they too can hear and be saved. 
Paul says loud and clear in verses 21 and 25, for since the wisdom of God, since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. But God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Somebody said, well, pastor, the word is preached here. Doesn't that mean that's your job, right? You've got to make sure you're preaching the cross. Well, that is part of my job, no doubt about it. But the word preach here is actually a word that simply means to share the good news. It literally is speaking in the Greek culture of a, of a conversational tone. What Paul is loudly saying is, it is our job as Christians to proclaim, to share the good news with others. I love how Paul asked the question in Romans chapter 10, because he gives us the wonderful word of promise in verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And all God's people said, Amen. Whoever calls in the name of Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're black or white, male or female, young or old, whoever believes in Jesus and calls upon him as Lord will be saved. But listen to verse 14. But how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. I want you to listen to that question and let it sink in for a moment. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Let me ask you a question. How are the people in your life hearing the gospel message from you? Are you sharing? Are you telling? Are you proclaiming the good things that God has done? How will they believe in him that they've not heard and how will they hear without someone to share with them the good news? Isn't it amazing that we naturally share with one another good news? In fact, we naturally share with people good news and we invite them to participate in things that we determine are good. I mentioned being a part of this wedding. Let, let me illustrate that. Just between Friday night and yesterday afternoon, the conversations that I heard of people's experiences and things that were good to them. For example, we had the rehearsal on Friday night and then we had the rehearsal dinner afterwards and, and the groom actually, the groom came up to me and was talking. He's like, man, I asked him where the family was staying. And he said, man, I gotta tell you about this hotel. And he began to tell me about a local hotel here in town. How all the hotels, because it was a game day weekend, they wanted to charge a high price and they wouldn't allow any kind of block rates. But this one hotel was awesome to work with. He not only gave them the rooms they needed, gave them a discount for the block rates. And he told me, Pastor, if you've ever got an event, that's the place you need to go. You gotta go to that hotel. I was like, okay, good to know. I'll, I'll take your advice. We sat down, we began to eat. And some of the guys there at the table, they got this, uh, I'll call it a gourmet burger that sounded absolutely disgusting to me. But nonetheless, <laughs> these college guys began chowing down on this burger and they're like, oh, this is so good. I, I can't believe you got that. You should have gotten this. And they're talking all about it. They're making it known. This is a good thing. They're inviting everybody to taste of this thing. Yesterday afternoon, I show up for the wedding. And as I showed up, one of the extended family members in the wedding party he walks up and he's like, hey, pastor, is there a place to change around here? He, he looked like he had been on a mountain somewhere. And I said, what have you been doing? He said, man, I've been mountain biking all morning. And I was like, really? He said, do you ride bikes? I said, do I look like I ride bikes? <laughs> <laughs> and then he's gonna tell me about this trail. The place he's from is very flat. Man, Virginia's beautiful. Let me tell you about this trail. You gotta go on this trail, pastor. It's amazing. Listen, three hours later when I left the reception, I walked by his table to say hello again. And he was talking with someone else about the trails in Virginia. Why? It was just a natural process as he's inviting people to come and experience what he's experienced. But my favorite was after the wedding, the party's all getting their pictures, you know, and everybody's looking nice and everything. And, 
And, and the lady who was a coordinator, her boyfriend was there with her and I'd met him the night before. And so I came up to him and he said, he said, hey, hey, he said, you're a football fan, right? I don't even know how he heard that, but I was like, yeah, I'm a football fan. He said, do you hear about that Alabama game? And I was like, la, 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 la. No, I didn't hear about it. I'm recording it right now. I'm a diehard Alabama fan. Shut your mouth, you know? And he's like, dude, best game of the day, best finish of the day. And I was like, how do you know we've all been at the wedding? He's like, I, I was in the back watching it on my phone. He's like, dude, he, he used to skip the whole game, just go to the final five minutes. It was awesome. It was amazing. You got to see the final. And I was like, God bless you, you know? And ruined the whole game for me, but thank you. We naturally, when we have experienced something that we know is good, we naturally share. Listen, if we would do that with such simple and trivial things as a burger and a football game, and how could we not share with others where we have found eternal life, salvation for our souls, a clear conscience, and peace with God? We get so caught up talking about all this craziness in the world today when the reality is there's life and there's salvation and there's hope and there's deliverance, there's victory, but it's found only in one place, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our calling as Christians to simply proclaim the gospel message. According to 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel is the fact that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. He was buried and he rose again from the grave. And so often we get afraid. Well, I... What if they ask me a hard question? What if I don't know what to say? What if they reject me? Friend, understand, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the one who called you, saved you, and sent you. They're not rejecting your message. They're rejecting his. They're not rejecting your offer. They're rejecting his gift of salvation. If you share the gospel with people, you will find, even as Paul found, that there are some who want to be convinced miraculously Paul says specifically the Jews ask for signs. Hey, God, if you just give us a sign, then we'll believe in Jesus and we'll follow him. But please understand the hardness of their hearts demonstrate otherwise. Jesus had been with them for three and a half years, giving miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, sign after sign after sign, and yet they continually refused to receive him and believe in him. So much so that Jesus said in Matthew 12, verses 38 through 40, listen to these words. The Bible says, some of the religious leaders declare, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You want a sign? Here's the sign. I'm gonna die on the cross for the sins of the world, and three days later, I'm gonna raise again from the grave. That'll be the sign. But when Jesus rose again from the grave... Did they believe in him? No. In fact, when Jesus rose again from the grave, these same Jews who demanded a sign made up all sorts of false stories and accusations. They paid off the guards with hush money to tell a lie and they continued to reject Jesus. In fact, even when the very disciples who were cowering in fear suddenly overnight became bold witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they began to persecute them and they began to imprison them. Why? Because of the hardness of their hearts, they would not receive Jesus. In our life, there will be some who claim that they need a miracle. The fact of the matter is they simply must receive the message of the cross. There are some who want to be convinced mentally. Give me some argument. Give me some magical argument. Give me the answer to my question. Like the Greeks who Paul said, the Greeks are searching for wisdom. 
But Acts chapter 17 tells us what they really wanted was not wisdom, but a new philosophy, some new argument, some new theory, or some new line of reasoning. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, when Paul is speaking to the Greeks, as soon as he begins to talk about Jesus, his death, and his resurrection, listen to how they respond in verse 18. They say, what could this idle babbler wish to say to us? Others, oh, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Paul was a scholar among scholars and one of the most educated people of his day. He spoke multiple languages and he astounded the many in his debates. But the reality is simply this. It's not that they really wanted wisdom. They just wanted some new argument for themselves. So when they heard the truth of the gospel, they rejected and they began to persecute and accuse Paul of being an idle babbler. Someone who's making up stories and myths and fables along the way. The reality is, is that it is our calling, regardless of the situation, to proclaim the gospel message. Christian, you don't have to know every answer. You don't have to know every verse. You simply must know that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world, that he died on the cross for the sins of the world, that he rose again from the grave. You must proclaim that truth and model that truth in a life that's been transformed by his grace. And as you do, the Holy Spirit of God will work to convict and to draw those he's chosen. Number three, I want you to see the promise of the cross. And we'll close our message. There was almost nothing more despised in their culture than the cross. It was seen as foolishness, a symbol of shame, justice, and pain. Who would have ever thought that the cross could actually be a symbol of life, hope, victory, and peace? But that was all made possible because of Jesus and what he did on the cross. Because of the cross and what Jesus did by dying and raising again from the grave, the cross has a promise of three things for us. The first is the promise of relationship with God. Even this morning, I don't know every person here. I don't know all of your names. I don't know all of your background. I don't know how you were raised. I don't know what your sins have been, and I don't know how you've been sinned against. But the promise of the cross is that you can have a relationship with God the Bible does say that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Because of our sin, we are not only sinners, but we are separated from God. There's nothing we can do to bridge that gap. There's nothing we can do to undo what's been done. But even though there's nothing that we could do, Jesus came and did everything possible for us. He willingly gave his life on the cross for our sins. The perfect sinless substitute giving his life as a sacrifice in our place, bridging the gap so that our sins, the debt has been paid so that our sins can be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because of that today, we can have a relationship with God. That's why verse 30 tells us this simple statement. By his doing, not our own, you are in Christ Jesus. It means literally the very moment you believe in Jesus Christ, we go from being separated from God in our sin, we go from being separated from God literally in the, in the transgression of our sin. In that moment, the very moment we believe in Jesus, we're forgiven and we're cleansed and we're brought into the body of Christ. Listen to this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12, 13, and 19. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what we were without Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints. And today you are of God's household. All who believe in Jesus Christ have the promise of relationship with God. But I'm here today to tell you, if you've not yet believed in Jesus Christ, you may know all about God, but you don't know him personally. You don't know him personally until you say yes to Jesus Christ. Number two, we have the promise of riches in Christ. You may not ever be rich in the eyes of the world, but listen to all the riches that we have available in Christ at the very moment we receive him as our Lord and Savior. Verse 30, Jesus becomes to us wisdom from God. Wisdom from God. The Bible tells us loud and clear in Colossians chapter two, verse three, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Friend, you can have wisdom in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of God, actually be a fool. And at the same time, the world can consider you a fool, but if you have Jesus, you are wise indeed and rich beyond measure. Not only do we have wisdom, notice what he says, and righteousness. The word righteousness literally means that we are clothed. It means that we have been covered, that even though we were in our sin and we were found guilty and we were found unclean by all the sin that we committed and all the things we'd done, at the very moment we repent of our sin, at the very moment we ask God to forgive us and save us, God not only forgives us, but the Bible says he literally clothes us. He covers us in his righteousness. Not only do we see righteousness, what's the next word? And sanctification. It literally means when you believe in Jesus Christ, you are set apart by God and for God. The picture here of sanctification is this. It means that God continues to mold us. He continues to shape us. He continues to make us more and more like Jesus. And the final wonderful blessing, and there is redemption. The word redemption literally means to set free by paying a price. Some translations say to literally buy back. It means that we were in our sin. We were lost in that place, but God in his grace and his mercy, he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. He literally paid a price for us so that we could be set free. First Peter 1 says it this way, knowing you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the very blood of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Do you want the wisdom of God? It comes by receiving Jesus. Do you want to be redeemed and set free from your sin? It comes by believing in Jesus. You want to be sanctified, set apart by God, molded and shaped to be more like Jesus? It comes by believing in Jesus. Do you want to have peace in your soul? Confidence and assurance of your salvation? It all comes by believing in Jesus. The riches of that promise. But the final thing I want you to see is simply this. The rejoicing the promise of rejoicing in Christ. No wonder then Paul would close in verse 31, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast only in the Lord. We come together today, we're not boasting in our talents, our abilities, our name, our fame. When we realize that we are just sinners saved by grace, all of our boasting and all of our rejoicing goes to one person and one person only. It is to praise the name of Jesus. As I sat there listening to that testimony yesterday, 
and that gentleman sharing his story, it was loud and clear. There was only one person who got the credit for his deliverance, his life that was changed, the peace that you could literally see on his countenance, and the hope that he had for his future. And that one person was the Lord Jesus Christ. And can I say to you today, if you're putting your hope and your peace, your confidence, and your boasting in anyone or anything else of this world, I'm telling you, in the end, it will fall short. Only deliverance is found in Jesus. You know, when 9-11 happened, everybody was saying, never forget, never forget. But man, there's been a lot of crazy in the world since then, hasn't there? In fact, if I'm being honest about it, even personally, it's not until I've been to New York and stood there at the memorial that I tend to even think about it a whole lot. But today, our calling is not to simply remember 9-11, Christians. We're called to remember the cross. And not merely to remember it, but to live our life in light of it to live as those who have been set free and changed by the power of the gospel. To serve the Lord knowing that he gave his all, his life for us. To honor him in all that we do and how we live and how we give, knowing that we can never outgive him for what he gave for us. Many of us know that truth and yet at the same time, kind of like 9-11, a lot of life has happened. Along the way, we've gone our own way. Maybe our feelings have gotten hurt along the way. Maybe we disagree with something about how the church handled the pandemic. Maybe we've gotten caught up in all the political chaos of the culture. The reality is God's calling us to get back, to never forget the cross. Can we bow our heads together? Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and lives, that you would be glorified in our response today, and you would have your way. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we try to lean on man's wisdom. Forgive us for the ways, like the Jews, with our hard hearts, we demand a sign. May we today humbly receive you by faith, and may you be glorified in our response. I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.